Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. You're listening to Work, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I'm very happy to be back on the podcast after a bit of a time away. We've got a few episodes coming up, and this first one, this first one's really, really fun. I spoke with Daniel Darby, who is a skydiving and wingsuit flying instructor and co-owner of Arcus Flight in Deland, Florida. If you somehow have never seen a video of wingsuiting, if you've never gone on YouTube and checked out one of these just insane clips that are all over it, it's a sport where you, you know, put on a suit and you jump out of a plane or off the side of a mountain and you spread out your arms and the suit allows you to catch the air and soar forward. It's called a human squirrel suit sometimes. Dan is a pro at this. He's not just an instructor, he's also an international competitor. He goes to places like China where they have wingsuiting competitions where people, you know, actually show up to watch the live action. He competes on the U.S. national team. It was a really, really fascinating conversation about what it's like to teach people how to jump out of an airplane, what it feels like to literally live the dream of human flight, and just about the athleticism that goes into this, and also about what he likes and doesn't like so much to see in a client. So, enjoy. What's your name, and what do you do? My name's Dan Darby, and I'm a professional wingsuit pilot. You're a professional wingsuit pilot. A wingsuit... That's the thing where you literally fly. The flying squirrel suits that you see people racing down mountains. How does one make a living as a wingsuit flyer? Barely. Barely. Uh, <laughs> I uh, do a lot of instruction. I run part of a company called the Arcus Flight. We do wingsuit rental sales and training where people with more than 200 skydives can contact us and I can teach you the basics of learning how to fly and get you started down your career of wingsuit flying. Do you only teach people how to wingsuit fly or do you teach like more basic skydiving as well? So I teach skydiving as well. It's just not what I try to spend my time doing. Uh, It's definitely something that I am capable and rated to do, but I definitely prefer when I get to fly my little wingsuit across the sky. (laughs) So you're teaching people how to wingsuit out of a plane, presumably. Yeah, so... You have to have 200 skydives before you can learn how to wingsuit. Okay. And then we'll start in a very small, very low performance wingsuits that are easier to control, but you still have to have the basic understanding of skydiving generally. Yeah. This is for the people who have gotten to that advanced level. Yeah. You teach, and my understanding is you also compete. Yeah. So for the past four years, I've been part of the United States parachute team, and I've gotten to go to a few world-level competitions and compete against some of the best in the world. And it's been a really, really fun experience getting to fly with the people that I've been admiring for the last decade. So we're going to talk about the teaching and the competing. I want to get into both parts of that, but I want to step back to the very beginning. How did you start jumping out of planes? Where did that urge come from? I was six years old when the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie came out. Key for all of us. Oh, yeah. The opening sequence where my heroes jumping from the plane and you got to see the green slash white ranger on his little skyboard and the whole group got together and built this little round and they were talking in free fall. Like, you know, totally realistic stuff. (laughs) 
But to my little six-year-old brain, I didn't know that that was even possible outside of like military people. And I was like, I got to try that one day, having no idea that that would become something that I got so invested into. You remember having this impression. You're like, that is awesome. I need to jump out of a plane too. Oh yeah. Since I was six, like I knew that it was something that I would at least do a few times. So is this something you expressed to your parents at any time at age six? Like most outlandish childhood dreams, they were like, yeah, sure. They tried to be as supportive as they could understanding that it probably wouldn't go anywhere yeah. like people who want to be race car drivers and astronauts and they uh quietly said okay have fun yeah and didn't really think anything of it were you like an extreme sports guy when you were growing up oh no i was a huge sissy <laughs> i would not do any sort of like high dives or jump off rocks or climb rocks or zip lines like that was very much not me it was a safe bet on their part to uh yeah. not believe me Wait, were you at all afraid of heights period I did experience the fear of heights a lot, but I really enjoyed trying to like push myself through that okay. unsuccessfully most times. Yeah, I actually relate to that. I am deathly afraid of heights. Like if I get too close to a ledge, I start to kind of wobble almost. It's like that little vertigo feeling. Oh, that doesn't go away. Yeah. Oh, okay. But the way I deal with that is occasionally I do something slightly insane that makes me feel afraid. And like I try to get past it, like whether it's hot air ballooning, which is a really low level version or trying to climb up a mountain or something. That's how I deal with that is like push myself to it. So when did you actually jump out of a plane for the first time? When did you finally realize your uh, Mighty Morphin Power Ranger dream? <laughs> <laughs> the laws in the U.S. say that you can't start skydiving until you turn 18. Unfortunately, I had to work on my birthday. So my first skydive was November 3rd, 2007, the day after I turned 18. Oh, wow. You got right to it. Oh, yeah. I had a best friend who lived next door to me. His name is Jake. He... And I talked about skydiving for seven years before we turned 18. So he was six months older than I was. So he got to start about six months before I did. I would go to the drop zone with him every weekend. I understood the process. I understood like how parachutes work and get packed and all the good stuff. Like I was fairly well prepared by the time I actually turned 18. I knew most of the instructors at the drop zone. I knew the layout of the drop zone. It was just awaiting for the dates to match up. So you were this 17-year-old kid just hanging around the skydiving school, basically, even though you couldn't do it. As strange as it sounds, that isn't uncommon. Really? I don't have any family in the sport, so that part is a little odd. But there's definitely some, like, legacy jumpers whose parents have been in the sport a long time, and so they hang around the drop zone for most of their childhood, and it's just waiting for them to get to a point where they're old enough to jump. It's like a bar mitzvah, kind of. Like today... There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except you, instead of having to sing in front of a bunch of people, you throw yourself at Or getting airplane. lifted up on the chair, they <laughs> throw you out of the plane. That's a better comparison. Equally frightening go. for a certain kind of person. So you'd been around and you were kind of learning the basics, I guess, or... So fortunately, slash unfortunately, uh, my parents sent me to a outdoor adventure camp when I was like 11. Yeah. And they introduced us to indoor skydiving like the vertical wind tunnel facility that we had in Orlando. Mm -hmm. For the few years between when I went there and when I turned 18, pretty much all of my birthday money I would save up and I would go do two to four minutes of indoor skydiving per year so that I had some understanding of what the wind would feel like. For someone who's never done it before, is that a good primer? Is it at all similar? It's a nearly perfect analog for your first few skydives. Huh. It's almost identical. Huh. So it actually does give you a pretty good sense of it. If you go into it as something that you want to use as a training tool, it can, yeah. Huh. But if you go in there like it's a thrill ride and you just want to sit there and drool on yourself, you can have that experience too. <laughs> Perfect. Skydiving was literally the realization of a childhood dream for you. Very much so, yeah. How did it go from kind of hobby and maybe addiction 
to an actual job? So I started out as a tandem videographer. So when people would come and do their first skydive attached to somebody, I would jump out with them with a camera or two on my head and I would take their pictures and videos and sell them to them when we got back to the ground. And so that would kind of self-fund the whole process where I would make a little bit of money enough to go do a few more jumps by myself and then I'd go do another video to make a few more dollars to go do a few more jumps on my own. You're feeding the habit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And eventually the drop zone that I was working at needed another instructor on staff because they had a big group coming in. So they asked if I would go get my instructional ratings. So I went to like a special course where they teach you how to teach skydiving. And it just kind of evolved from there. Take me through a basic jump with a student. How does the teaching go and how does the jump itself go? What is supposed to happen? So after the student's done their four to six hour ground school, each jump briefing is going to be between 20 and 40 minutes where we talk about the very specific curriculum that we want to achieve on each jump. Okay. Through the process of AFF, each jump gets increasingly more challenging Mm -hmm. as we develop more and more skills, whether it's turns or barrel rolls or front flips or back flips. In the beginning, a single jump is a 20 to 30 minute briefing about how to get into the correct free fall body position and pull your parachute at the right time. Yeah. If all goes well, from the time that you meet your student to the time that you're back on the ground, it can be as short as an hour and a half mm-hmm. where you talk about getting out of the plane and arching and checking your altimeter and signaling that you're going to open your parachute and opening your parachute at the right time. And we'll discuss the landing pattern, how we want you to fly your parachute and land in the right field. Or as the jumps get more complex, we can start talking about how to do 360s and barrel rolls while staying on a specific heading. If all goes well, it's a 20 to 30 minute briefing. It's a 20 minute plane ride up to 13,500 feet, approximately one minute of actual free fall, and then another five to eight minutes under parachute until your feet are back on the ground. Then there's a 20 minute debrief where we watch the video and talk about what went right and how we can improve certain aspects. Mm -hmm. And then we get set up to go do it again. So as your students are getting more advanced, you're basically teaching them to do kind of gymnastics in the sky. So yes, but there's a purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. We don't care that we can see a student do a front flip. We don't care that a student can do a barrel roll. We want to see a student get unstable and then get stable again on their own without us having to intervene. So all of the tackling people and stopping spins and stuff should happen earlier on because as you progress, you should be at a point where you can stop that on your own. It's how to protect yourself in the sky. Instability recovery, yes. Interesting. So it's not for showing off, even though you could do a flip to show off on camera. It's also... You certainly could. There's also a self-preservation aspect to it. And how many times will you go up and jump with a student in a day? So there's no limit on Mm -hmm. the number of jumps that you can do in a day, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of learning involved. And so it's really dependent on the person's mental flexibility. If you're there and you're committed to learning and you're like physically and mentally able to keep going, we can do four to six jumps in a single day. Yeah. And there's no reason not to. Or if the person is physically tired or mentally drained after having these very powerful experiences, then maybe two to three jumps a day. But it's dependent on a multitude of factors, including weather, gear availability, the number of airplanes that the drop zone is flying. Yeah. There's a bunch of things that can contribute to how many jumps in a day you get to do. Are there ever times where it's like borderline about whether you can jump? Like, are there times where like it's getting kind of windy and you have to make a call while you're up there? Or? So, yeah, there's actually really good communication between the ground staff and the pilot. And if we receive a strong wind gust while we're in the plane, we'll tend to ride the plane down. 
they'll radio up and say, hey, the wind's gusting to 19. Anybody with rental gear has to land in the plane because they don't want inexperienced jumpers trying to fly parachutes in challenging conditions. So they're pretty good about communication and making sure that everybody's as safe as possible. So they do like a hard cutoff for people or they say, nope, it's too fast. There's too much wind. You can't come down. Each drop zone has some leeway in what their wind limits are for advanced jumpers. Yeah. Um, But the USPA actually regulates what students can jump in. And if the USPA regulation is higher than what the drop zone is comfortable with, drop zones are well within the rights to limit what students can jump in if they believe that they need to keep the students safe. How many times a day do you jump out of a plane? So it's super weather dependent. But the most that I've ever done is 14 in a day. Um, And there's been plenty of zero days where I show up to the drop zone and we don't get any jumps. So somewhere between zero and 14. There aren't enough clients around. Do you ever just go up and have a jump for yourself or? Oh, constantly. I really, really enjoy flying, but I also train pretty consistently. So if I'm not working with somebody, I'll jump on my own trying to improve like a weightlifter in a gym. He's going to go there even if he's not training somebody else. He's still going to hit the bench, you know? Yeah. So I'm still going to go and try and beat my own speed record or get a better time or distance or sometimes just fly for fun. So you started off teaching real beginners, not people who had done the kind of 200 jumps thing because you weren't at that point. Correct. Yeah. So what is it like teaching a first time skydiver? So you get really good at word selection and reading people's body language and their skills and abilities before you even get on the plane. There's only so much that you can do once you get out of the plane. It's very noisy, very windy. The communications that you have are hand signals. So briefing and preparing ahead of time is super crucial. It's not something that you can give detailed instructions during especially two-way communication. So if they're not understanding the one way that you're trying to explain something, you kind of have to wait till you're done to go back over it. You said you have to kind of read body language. What are you looking for when you are encountering your clients for the first time? What are you trying to figure out about them? I really appreciate a client who is mindful under pressure. They don't have to be able to do everything perfectly, but I really have a hard time with people who go full on blue screen of death (laughs) and their eyes are open. Things are like physically processing, but mentally they're just not there. There's not a whole lot to be done when their mental state isn't up to the task. Blue screen of death. That's that's a good way to put it. Well, so who is like your typical client walking in for that kind of a program? One of my favorite things about skydiving is that there is no answer to that question. Mm-hmm. We can teach people from the time they turn 18 up until 60, 65 years old. Uh, yeah. We have people who are doctors, lawyers, or they work in movie theaters. They're bank tellers. There's no one type of person. Yeah. And that's kind of my favorite thing about it is that like physics works the same on every single person's body. Yeah. And it doesn't discriminate. Are there certain kinds of clients who are notorious for being troublesome? Like, are there clients that you fear getting? (laughs) There's definitely certain types of clients where I have to mentally prepare for the both physical and mental gymnastics that I'm about to have to do. Okay. Fortunately, unfortunately, frat bros tend to be pretty athletic. Okay. And so they understand like the body mechanics of what we're about to try and do. The powerful businessman who has not been told no in a long time and hasn't had to like try and fail a few times at something is usually the ones that I'm the most cautious with. They're used to being able to throw money at a situation and get their way. But I mean, when we're dealing with just high speed physics, there's no way to do that. 
<laughs> you you can't Bloomberg your way out of out of <laughs> an accident. So, what's an example of something that can go wrong on a skydive with a client when we're just doing regular freefall? We're not quite at the wingsuiting yet. Aside from, you know, plummeting to your death, which I'm assuming doesn't happen too often. So kind of like when you first start learning how to ride a bike and you take the training wheels off, we're not expecting people to show up and go from training wheels to Lance Armstrong, right? Yeah. We don't expect you to be perfect. We expect there to be little wobbles. You might fall over a time or two. That is part of the game. It's part of learning like any other sport. What's a wobble, though, when you're falling out of a plane? <laughs> that's... Sometimes what will happen is people will have their body in a configuration that contributes to an uncontrolled turn or they'll start to spin or even flip over onto their back. Sometimes that requires the instructor to uh, dive at the student and flip them back over or stop the spin physically. We have to like get in their way. Mm -hmm. And then we'll actually put the training wheels back on and go to the indoor skydiving place where we can practice in a little bit more controlled environment. Interesting. That sounds like action movie stuff where you have to literally fly to your client who's spinning in midair. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> There's no gentle way to do it. Like if it, the spin's getting violent, your responsibility as an instructor yeah. is to slow them down and get them righted so that when the parachute opens, it's not going to be twisted up or anything like that. Do you remember the first time you had to do that? You had to go catch someone while they were spinning? So in order to get your instructional rating, yeah. the instructor examiner has to present you with scenarios akin to things that you'll see in real life. And so the first time that I got to do it was on somebody who knew what they were doing. So it was kind of like a fun little wrestling match in the sky where the legs and the arms are spinning and the helmets are flying by and you kind of have to get in there and just like football tackle your way to glory. <laughs> It's like the point break thing. You're jumping and grabbing someone and shouting. While being mindful of not accidentally opening the parachute or the reserve parachute and not pulling on the wrong thing. It's a very split-second mental game. Yeah. It's super fun. I like how you end that with super fun, not super stressful. Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's fun. Stress is definitely part of it, and there's yeah. no denying that, but it's very much an exciting part of the job. That's reassuring, I guess. What is the most frightening thing you've ever seen happen to a student in the sky? that you had to intervene on. So teaching through language barriers is always really hard. Yeah. And every once in a while, we'll have a big group come from out of the country and the English isn't always top notch and we teach through translators. And so once we take off and the translator's not with us, our communication is basic at best. And so if there's any sort of miscommunication about where we want the student to open or how we want them to resolve any sort of situation, it's really, really hard to communicate that with them. And so sometimes you can think that you've communicated things clearly and then the jump goes completely differently than expected. And you're not sure if it's the student having an emergency or just a misunderstanding. So you want to give your student a chance to learn yeah. without being overbearing. I've definitely seen some students start to take off on spins and I have to get in and stop them. But for the most part, a well-communicated briefing on the ground can alleviate a lot of those kind of problems. If I were going to learn to go skydiving, what is something you would tell me not to do? What is some advice that you would give a beginning skydiver on how to avoid frightening or irritating their instructor? Don't talk about YouTube, please. <laughs> Wait, unpack that a little bit. Why, why is that? So you're showing up to a skydive facility. You're about to spend a significant amount of money to learn how to do an extreme sport with people who have done this multiple hundreds of times. We don't care what you learned, quote unquote, on the internet. Please listen to your instructors. Yeah. There is 
hours and hours and hours of skydiving and wingsuit and base jump videos on the internet yeah. and people will show up and they will have a fundamental misunderstanding about how this process is going to go because of what they saw on the internet. What do they think is going to happen? I mean, I got a phone call from a guy who has done one single tandem skydive where he got motion sickness asking to rent a wingsuit. So I do think that there's a disconnect between what people expect and actually receive when they show up to a drop zone. Yeah, I've read about this, that having these videos on YouTube and the popularity might be drawing people to the sport who aren't necessarily practiced enough or have the experience or even have the right constitution for it. Is that something you've noticed? I mean, I'm a huge, huge believer and proponent of getting to make your own decisions. Yeah. That's kind of a core belief, especially when it comes to sports where you're risking your own life. I'm not going to tell somebody that they can and can't, but I do hold very dearly this sport and I don't want any negative marks on it by inexperienced people dying or getting hurt. So I want to give people as much preparation as they are willing to take. Yeah. And I won't personally let people violate any of the basic safety recommendations. I won't rent wingsuits to people with less than 200 jumps. And if you are an inexperienced wingsuiter, I'm not going to rent you a high-performance wingsuit. Yeah. But yeah, we definitely do see people watching too many YouTube videos and showing up thinking that they're going to be hot shit. And uh, <laughs> they get rudely awakened by both physics and... Uh, regulations. So I vaguely remember when we met you talking about a client actually barfing on you in midair. Unfortunately, you are not misremembering that. <laughs> it typically happens after the parachute is open and the adrenaline has started to like calm down a little bit. And depending on how they're sitting in the harness, sometimes blood flow contribute to a, uh, a feeling of discomfort and nausea. And so I've been thrown up on between four and seven times in the air. That's just something you have to get used to, the possibility of it happening? Yeah. You can adjust the student's harness as best as you can, but some people's physiology just work out so that their veins and arteries are sitting in a certain way and things just aren't going to be comfortable until you have a harness made for your body. Yeah. And when you're jumping student gear, it's not made for your body and it's not the most comfortable thing ever. Is that something you warn people about ahead of time? Like, just so you know, you might barf on the way down? I try not to bring it up, but every <laughs> once in a while, I'll ask if they get motion sickness because that's a pretty good indicator. If people can handle a roller coaster, then 97 out of 100 times, they're going to be fine. And it's really kind of a uh, freak thing when you get thrown up on. What do you do when that happens? If you ask them to stick their face in their shirt, they're going to try and hold it in more because they don't want to throw up on themselves any more than want to throw up on you. Yeah. So... That'll really tend to get them to hold it in as long as they can. But once it starts to happen, there's not a whole lot to be done. It's just going to be kind of gross for a few minutes. And then when you land, you shower. <laughs> All right. So wingsuit flying. We're moving on from the extreme stuff to the very extreme stuff. How did you start with the wingsuiting? So I was looking for a way to uh, celebrate my 300th skydive. And there was this older guy around the drop zone who had a suit that would fit me and he gave me a very basic introduction to how to control this thing. And then he sent me on my merry way to go do it on my own. And <laughs> very, very much not recommended. And I wish that there was more instruction available at that period and location. So that's kind of like a 
a driving force between what we have to offer. We really want people to have the best training available. Yeah. I don't want people to have to go through it that way because I think that the suit technology has come so far in the last decade. And I think instructional techniques have come so far since then that I really don't want anybody to have to try and suss it out on their own because it is less safe. It costs more in the long run. It's not as fun. It's just not the way to go. How long ago was that? That was nine years ago. Okay. You've been doing it for almost a decade now. I was not super thrilled with it as a discipline within skydiving, largely in part because of the lack of training that I received. Yeah. Coupled with the suit technology that was available at the time. So while I started around nine years ago, I wouldn't say that I got into it exclusively up until like maybe five years ago yeah. when uh, the companies that I work with now got into the game and uh, really started to put some serious dollars into R&D and really started to revolutionize how suits are constructed. It's become more of a formal discipline. Yeah, you have people who work specifically as wingsuit instructors and trainers. It's definitely become more solidified as a discipline and not a stunt. It's becoming something that you can repeatedly do and you're not looked at like you're that crazy person on the drop zone anymore. Yeah. Now you're just like, oh, there's that guy in the wingsuit. It's a respectable professional thing to do. You're not just a... a... That might be a little bit of a stretch, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's an almost respectable thing, thing to be doing. There we go. I think when most people hear the phrase wingsuit, a squirrel suit, they are probably picturing one of those videos of someone, you know, flying down the side of a mountain, the really crazy stunts, which you do some of that. But what's the goal while flying? Think about wingsuiting like track and field. There's shot put, there's pole vaulting, there's the 100 meter dash, there's the long distance running. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different things that you can do while wingsuiting. In competition settings, we have time runs, distance runs, and speed runs, all on separate jumps where you're trying to either go the fastest or the farthest or stay in the air the longest. And there's also acrobatic flying where you're doing barrel rolls next to your friends and high-fiving and grabbing onto their feet. And then there's big formations where you're flying with 50 of your closest friends and trying to make a big diamond in the sky. There's a lot of different things that you can do here. 50 people at once in wingsuits trying to stay in formation. Sounds absolutely insane to me how, how you coordinate that. Those kind of things typically take a week or so yeah. of like dedicated jumps where everybody shows up to the drop zone and they have multiple aircraft and everybody's ready to go at the same time. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of like ground preparation of learning who you're flying next to, moving your whole little pod into formation at the same time with the right people at the right time. Yeah, uh, It's a very intricate balance of skill and art. So tell me about the suit. You know, what is it you're actually putting on? The way that they started, it was basically a pair of coveralls with fabric sewn between the arms and the legs to deflect a little bit of wind may drive you forward as you're in free fall. But relatively recently, they've come a long way. So now that they're actually pressurized units where there's a top skin and a bottom skin and the whole unit actually inflates and creates like a rigid shape, uh, like the cross section of an airplane wing to actually develop a little bit of lift and keep you in the air longer, drive you forward faster. Interesting. They've been improving the aerodynamics with these things over time. The minuscule details that create these drastic differences between suits is incredible to watch. And over the last couple of years, it's been basically an arms race between some of the leading manufacturers to say who can make the most efficient suit. What makes it a good suit, in your opinion, versus like a, a not great suit? So there's a fine balance between 
high performance and user comfort mm -hmm. where you can still open your parachute easily, you can still control your parachute easily, but you still want to have a high forward speed and a high glide ratio where you can actually cover a lot of distance. Mm -hmm. And what other gear do you have up there? Do you have meters and things that are telling you about your speed? What are you wearing besides the suit? So inside my helmet, I have a GPS data logger that's talking to me in real time. Uh, and it's telling me my ground speed or my glide ratio or how fast I'm falling, uh, whatever I set it to before the jump. And so I can use that information to help maximize my performance while I'm flying. I can change my body position to increase my speed or decrease my fall rate so that I can go farther or faster. It sounds like Iron Man talking to Jarvis. It's very, very similar to Jarvis in your ear. It, whose voice are you hearing? Is it, is it Siri? So it's a guy like... named Michael Cooper. Okay. He's the creator of the little GPS unit that we have, and he like recorded all of the little numbers and stuff, and he's the one talking to you. You're listening to Mike tell you how fast you're falling as you're <laughs> sure am. You know, soaring through the air. What does it feel like to fly? It really does feel like all the dreams that you had, uh, where you just like spread your arms and you're cruising around your neighborhood. It feels like that, but maybe a little bit louder. Uh, the wind's pretty loud up there. Yeah, kind of a sense of freedom. Oh, it's an incredible sense of freedom, especially when you see a cloud off to your side or when you're flying by a mountain and you see the trees whizzing by you. It's a really, really incredible feeling where just lean where you want to go and you're going that way. So a student comes to you, says, I, wa I want to learn how to wingsuit. And assuming they have like the 200 jumps they need, are there ever people you'll say no to? Or are there things that you're looking for, whether or not the person's prepared? How do you decide, okay, I'm going to take that student on? So the 200 jumps is a required minimum. Yeah. Not all students will be prepared at 200 jumps. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to take 300 or 400 or even more before they're truly comfortable with their gear and being in free fall. If somebody has been focusing on a skill set that isn't free fall related, like if they want to go do a bunch of parachute formation jumps, mm -hmm. they're going to need more jumps in free fall to make up for the time that they haven't been spending in free fall to learn how to control their body. Yeah. Um, so it really is kind of case by case. Yeah. So the thing you need to be able to do, though, in order to start flying is be able to control like the minute movements of your body while falling through the air. That's that's the core skill set. That is at least 50% of it. The other 50% would be intimate gear familiarization. Like, you're making things a lot more difficult to access, so we have to know 100% of the time that you can open your parachute at the right time and deal with any emergencies that you may have. So it kind of has to be muscle memory for them, it sounds like. Exactly. You want someone for whom that's automatic. Yeah, without any second thoughts or hesitations, you have to know exactly how to handle all situations. How do you start teaching someone to fly? So I've written a ground school that I've found to be pretty good for most people mm -hmm. without a huge amount of alterations. We can start by doing a few tracking jumps where without a wingsuit, you're pretty much assuming the same position that you would use and you're creating some forward drive through the sky, but not nearly the same amount of lift or power as you'll have with the wingsuit because the controls are going to be quite similar. Once we're comfortable with the controls in that way, then we can put the wingsuit on. We have to talk about some navigation. Because we're going to travel so much further, we actually have to plan where we're going to fly, where we're going to open your parachute so that we can land at the drop zone and go do it again. Do you ever worry about just like losing a student while you're flying? Not like them getting hurt, but just like, you know, you go faster than them or they go faster, you go in different directions. <laughs> like, it seems like it takes a lot of coordination. 
So sometimes the students that start off in AFF that have to overcome their blue screen of death then yeah. get to re-overcome that once we start wingsuiting. <laughs> and so I have seen a few people just completely brain lock and fly one direction straight away from the airport for their entire skydive. And we end up landing two and a half miles away from the airport. And we land and I have to ask them, what were they thinking? Where were we going? Why didn't we make any turns like we talked about? Sometimes they just don't have an answer. They don't remember anything that happened. If you're landing like two and a half miles away from the airport, are you just like showing up in someone's yard? Like what what happens there? That's exactly what happens. Sometimes it's a cow field. Sometimes it's somebody's pool party. Uh, You never know where. Have you actually landed at someone's pool party personally? I guess it wasn't a pool party per se. It was like a little grill out kind of thing. But yeah. <laughs> what did what did they say? Uh, they just asked if we needed a ride. Most people that encounter parachutes outside of like a airport, they're always usually really curious about it. Everybody's really friendly. I've been offered rides back to the airport every time that I've landed not at the airport. That's such a chill reaction. It's like someone's just showing up in a, in a squirrel suit like in your backyard. And it's like, oh, yeah. Hey, buddy, want a hot dog? I mean, they usually require you to take a picture or two with, like, the kids, but yeah. after that, they're they're happy to help you out. So, occasionally you get blue screen of death situation where people are, they, they just fly off in a direction, but you've, you've always been able to follow them, presumably. Is that is that what you're kind of doing? You're following behind the student while they're going, or...? If everything's going well, I'll let them lead the jump. I do have the ability, based on suit size, uh, suit type and like personal skill development, I can move around a student. So if they need some coaching in the air, I can get in front of them and tell them what I think they need to be doing. But sometimes they're just so hyper-focused on what they're feeling that any amount of coaching that I give them is all for naught, and they don't really give any response to it. At that point, I'm just going to follow them for uh, safekeeping. That's, you're just, you're attending. You're a shepherd at that point. Babysitting. Yeah, babysitting. Can you explain to someone who who has no concept of what it's like to fly like what you're actually doing with your body so to fly a wingsuit efficiently you want to make very small movements you don't want to be doing anything erratic it's really just the physics toy you're letting the wind flow over your outstretched arms and legs you're spreading your legs as far as apart as you can you're opening your arms all the way open across your chest and just very very subtle shoulder inputs to steer keeping your legs really outstretched to drive you forwards. Um, You can lean forward on your chest to go towards the ground faster. You can elevate your chest to uh, arrest a dive if you want to fall a little bit slower. And if you develop speed correctly and efficiently, you can actually go up a few hundred feet. Oh, wow. Yeah, you (laughs) You can can, uh, stop falling briefly. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So you also 
compete. Wingsuit competition has become a huge part of my life, yeah. How many competitions do you do per year, would you say? Somewhere between three and eight. Some of them take place online, where you're using your GPS data logger that we talked about, and you're recording it, and you're just submitting it online, and anybody can do them anywhere. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're at a like centralized skydiving location where everybody shows up we all get on the same plane we all fly in the same conditions and we see who can go the fastest or who can fly the farthest and sometimes i go to mountains and i jump off and i race head to head against my friends and see who can cross the finish line first huh that's base jumping right or that's wingsuit base yes wingsuit base can you explain for people who aren't familiar the difference between base jumping versus you know jumping out of a plane so base jumping is parachuting off of a fixed object a building antenna span earth base is an acronym mm-hmm. and you can use a wingsuit while you do it or you can not use a wingsuit while you do it either way it's still base jumping wingsuit base is just the same thing as flying a wingsuit out of a plane but you start with your feet on something uh you push off of a cliff or a building or an antenna and you fly you do a little bit of base jumping competitions you do some regular just jump out of a plane competitions and some of them everyone comes together some of it's online the, the ones where everyone comes together like where are they in the u.s are they in foreign countries where are you going for those competitions so there's usually two or three in the u.s every year mm-hmm. um there's one happening this weekend in zephyr hills florida there's always a uspa united states parachute association wingsuit nationals to select the u.s national team mm-hmm. And that usually happens later on in the year, like between September and November. And then the U.S. national team gets to go to the international competitions. Last year it was in Italy. This upcoming year it's in Russia. And it's the same format where you jump out, you try and fly as far or as fast, and then you just get ranked against your classmates. And so you are on the national team. Yeah, for the last four years I've been part of the U.S. parachute team. Yeah. And how do you guys usually do an international competition? We usually take... Between three and five of the top 10 spaces. That's pretty good. Yeah, considering that the U.S. team is funded not nearly as well as some of the other international teams, we do very well. Who is the competition? Who are your I mean, rivals? all of the other countries that have an Olympic committee also have an FAI wingsuit delegation. So uh, we're flying against Sweden, Norway, yeah. uh, Russia, Italy, pretty much everybody has a wingsuit team. Who would you say are your key rivals? Russia does typically put up some really good numbers. Their flyers are typically really, really good. Australia is also very, very skilled. Their team are really, really fun to hang out with. Great guys, but very talented as well. I definitely look up to some of the guys on the Australian team. Norway, always very good as well. The last world championship was won by a Norwegian. It's a battle. Who's the big money in parachuting and wingsuiting? So some countries, their top performers get paid a yearly stipend to allow them to train harder. Like I know Norway, their top teams and their top performers get a training budget every year. I know Australia's top performers, they get a training budget every year. But most of the U.S. performers, we are all self-funded. In the very beginning, you're taking videos in order to fund your parachuting habit. Now you're teaching people to parachute and wingsuit in order to fund your competition habit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of every jump, I still get to fly my own wingsuit all the time. So I can use at least a little bit of time on every jump trying to improve. Are there big prizes or? There's no prizes pretty much whatsoever. So this is purely for the sport of it and the bragging rights. Yeah. <laughs> like Nike's not coming to the competitions and handing out like full sponsorships. Ford's not coming out and like handing out cars or anything. Nobody's branding their wingsuits. 
Although I think that it could be that way, and I think that it should be that way. We are just as much athletes as tennis players or hockey players. I would love to see it get to that point. Right now, I don't think that they see the marketing value in it. Yeah. What is the, the craziest competition you've ever had to do? So for the last eight years, basically since the competition itself started, uh, the World Wingsuit League in China has always been like the dream, like the thing that I've always wanted to get to go to. It's a in-person competition off of a mountain in China where part of the competition is flying through a little styrofoam target where they hang it on fishing wire and you have a little horn sticking out of your helmet and there's a bullseye painted on the target and within three centimeters you're trying to stick the little horn on your helmet through the little bullseye. And that was definitely some of the most intense jumps that I've done. You said it's a three centimeter target? The bullseye is three centimeters. The whole thing is maybe two feet across, but it's the bullseye is very small. You say two feet, like that's a large target. <laughs> is that like... You know, I guess perspective, yeah. How far do you have to fly to get to the target? I wouldn't say that it was super far. Uh, it was less than an eighth of a mile. It was very close. Uh, eighth of a mile, it's still a few blocks. <laughs> Well, considering that we're traveling more than 200 kilometers an hour, an eighth of a mile goes by very quickly. There's a little bit of a run-up. I'd say from the time that your feet leave the mountain to the time that your horn is going through the target is maybe something like 12 to 14 seconds. Um, and you have that amount of time to kind of line it up like a jouster. But you can definitely blow your run early on by getting too low or even too high. Uh, you really have to be mindful of where you're aiming the whole time. And did you get the bullseye when you did that? I didn't get the bullseye. I got one or two rings outside of it, but I'm happy enough with that. Why is the World Wingsuit Competition in China? The Chinese actually really enjoy wingsuiting. In the U.S., wingsuiting, especially off of mountains, is kind of frowned upon most places. Uh, there's a few places where you can do it legally, but a large majority of them in the U.S. are actually illegal. But the Chinese really enjoy the spectacle of it, so uh, we get invited back every year, it seems. They invite a crowd of people to come up and watch and they set an observation platform right next to the target and they get to come watch us like smash right through it. The whole like styrofoam thing just explodes and everybody cheers and takes pictures. It's really, really fun to be there. Have you ever been afraid for your life while parachuting or wingsuiting? I take active steps to be as safe as possible, but mm -hmm. I never lose sight of the fact that every jump is dangerous and could, in theory, be the last. Mm -hmm. But if you take the right steps and you do it in good conditions while you're mentally sound and you're following the process, you can do it with some longevity. I understand that you can never eliminate the entirety of the risk, but I try not to put myself in situations where I'm actively fearful that yeah. I might not survive. Have you ever been injured in any way or had a, a you know an accident? Nothing major. I've broken a toe. Like I clenched my toes as I was landing and landed weird and just kind of broke a toe. I did land in a tree once in line twist. Like my parachute lines were twisted up and I was unable to get out of that before I landed in the tree. How'd you get out um, of the tree? Oh, I fell the rest of the way. <laughs> Jesus. But I have over a thousand base jumps and over 3,000 skydives and no major bone breaks or serious mm. complications. So I'd say that my track record's doing pretty well. Yeah. You read a lot now about how in base jumping and wingsuiting, you're starting to see more deaths. Do you have any friends who've, you know, passed away or has that not happened in your circle? Unfortunately, I do have a few friends who have passed through both wingsuiting, base jumping, and just regular base jumping. 
it is a risky game. We all accept the risk. We try to mitigate them, but sometimes it's not possible to always win. Yeah. How do you kind of deal with that? When a loved one or a friend dies, you know, it's hard for anyone. It's, it's difficult to process, but they die doing the thing that you do every day. Do you think about that? Does that weigh on you at all? Or is it just something you've learned to kind of compartmentalize? I don't think that anybody can truly convince themselves that you can do this forever without seeing any of your friends lost. It doesn't get easier the more times that it happens. You still feel it. It still sucks. Uh, you still don't get to say goodbye to the people. But I feel uniquely fortunate that I get to know why they felt that it was worth the risk. I understand that sometimes families have a harder time because it's just like this activity that you like to go do. But when you're in it as deep as I am, I understand that we do these things because we're driven to do them, not because like it's just this thing that we like to do. It's something that we are pulled to go do. It's, uh, it's a really strong calling. It's difficult to not follow it. You can't not do it. You can't stop. If you can stop, you should. I have had friends who have passed away from doing things that they know that they shouldn't do, that they have gotten away with previously, and they just kept pushing their luck. And those are always the hardest ones to wrap my head around because like, either we've had a conversation about not doing the thing that ended up killing them, or you both understood that they were pushing and pushing where they shouldn't be. Those are always the hardest ones to deal with. What is your favorite jump in the world? So my favorite jump that I've done was the most technical jump that I've done. It was called the Death Star Line. It's in Italy. It's a half-day adventure to get to the exit point. You exit directly into a little slot canyon, and you're flying with a wall six feet on either side of you, and you're going down this little hallway, and it's just like uh, that scene in Star Wars where Luke's flying in between the little canyon, and he blows up the Death Star. And you exit your, the little canyon, and you have a little glide flight over a like woodsy forest. You fly directly next to a house, and then you open your parachute, and you land next to a river, and it's just... It was the most intense jump that I've ever done. It was the most beautiful jump that I've ever done. And I really hope that I get to do that again at some point. When you tell people that you do this for a living, what's the question you most commonly get? I get a lot of confusion, like people not understanding the physics behind it, or they don't understand why I would want to jump off of a cliff. And then I show them a YouTube video or something. They're like, I get it now. I understand. The younger kids typically think it's really cool. The middle-aged and older are always really concerned about my retirement plans. <laughs> Keep doing this. <laughs> Keep jumping yeah. on planes. Yeah, no, this is, this is my plan right here. Uh, I yeah. love it. All right, man. Thank you for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or send us an email at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Rosemary Belson. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. A special thank you to Jason DeLeon for doing some last-minute recording. Please catch us next week. <laughs>